is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is, of course, Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is the Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Now, Richard, big tech is back in the news. We've got to talk about Amazon and some unionization votes, but we've also got to talk about Elon Musk because he may be buying Twitter. Uh, this saga started last month when he, it, it was announced that he'd bought 9% of the company and had been invited to join the board. But then he turned that board seat down, spent a weekend tweeting ideas about how to change the company, and then has just submitted an all-cash offer to purchase Twitter on a hostile takeover. Now, of course, Musk runs Tesla, he runs SpaceX, and he could end up running Twitter, three companies that are dominant in their fields. At what point does he run into some sort of, I don't know, monopolist wall that regulators of the FTC, uh, the FTC might say, you aren't allowed to do this? I mean, is he, can, he keep, can he keep expanding into other industries? Well, the answer is yes, if he keeps expanding into other industries. The general view that the FTC takes, even under Ms. Kahn, is that it's concentration in a given industry that gives rise to monopoly power that allows you to essentially maintain price rises even as you increase the or reduce the total number of goods that you receive. And these are unrelated industries, so it's not going to be an antitrust tolerance in the, in the particular web. There is, however, the possibility of a neo-Brandeisian situation. Uh, the neo-Brandeisians has become a very fashionable term. And this is based on the work that uh, Louis Brandeis did when he was actually on the Supreme Court writing about various stuff, in which he says the great risk that we have in politics is not market concentration, but the threat that large amounts of wealth provide uh, to the general system, so that if, in fact, you allow these kinds of mergers, there's a real risk that it will translate into a form of unprecedented political dominance on the part of the people who exert it. These kinds of arguments have been raised against Mark Zuckerberg and so forth, and now it turns out the difference between Zuckerberg and Musk is Musk seems to be a much more adroit political player in sort of navigating these particular waters because what he does tends to really surprise. Why would a guy put in a bid for 9% of the company? Who knows? And then when he's offered a board seat, he turned it down. Well, why? Then when he puts in an offer for the whole company, he's now trying to complete his purchase, having gotten the down payment that is already made. And he certainly has given forward an agenda. And what will magically happen if this goes forward is all of a sudden the sort of hard left monopoly with respect to the video platforms and the internet platforms will disappear and you'll start getting all sorts of competition. The cries for monopoly deregulation will start to diminish on both the right and the left. And then we'll start to see whether or not what Mr. Uh, Moss thinks is or Musk thinks is news is what the other companies start to think. And we'll start seeing different disinformation have a rather different uh, meaning than it currently had. So this is really fraught with immense possible limitations. If he can pull it off, he still has to persuade people to buy. Generally speaking, if you give an all-cash offer, you're better off in these kinds of markets because what it means is you do not have to have your buyers trying to figure out what your commercial paper is worth. What probably has happened is he didn't take this out of the piggy bank. He has probably arranged some arrangement with some banks that he they will already lend him money. Uh, that money could then be used to this. 
so that his debt will be to the particular banks rather than to the shareholders, which means that he will have a much more comfortable arrangement with the people whom he's working with if they're not suspicious former shareholders taking paper. Uh, but it turns out that it's a company uh, which he has pre-selected in order to be compatible with his interests. So I think there's a lot going on. Uh, are you worried at all about Musk becoming, I don't know, so powerful and hiding behind the standard of, you know, Twitter would be, it, it is a private company. Um, it can do what it wants. Um, you know, free speech is about restricting government power, not restricting, not, not well, Twitter and other companies, Facebook and the rest of them have been criticized on free speech grounds. We, we've discussed this on this program before that, you know, the First Amendment applies to the government, not to these companies. Yes, the First Amendment does, but then these are private parties, but there are at least two giant caveats on this, which were probably not applied during a Biden administration to the Musk operation. One is if it turns out that there are cooperative activities that take place between the government and the particular private category, uh, for limited purposes, it may be treated as if it were a government entity. So if it turns out that the Biden administration offered subsidies to one of these platforms in order to carry a certain kind of view with respect to global warming or integration or any issue, at that point, the state action doctrine becomes a bit murky. But there's a fair bit of private authority which starts to say that the government authorizes activities which it could prohibit. That may count as state action, even though it doesn't command you to do the kinds of things in question. So that's one of the things that you have to worry about. The second thing is it's not as though the syllogism goes that because you can't regulate under the First Amendment because it's not a public agency, it doesn't follow that you can't regulate at all. There are all sorts of rules having to do with private common carriers who exert some form of monopoly power, and these could easily be extended uh, to the domain of speech as well as to the domain of, of, of pricing. Now, the interesting feature, the moment that Musk gets in the market, assuming he has an orientation different from the incumbent players in this, like Amazon and Google, what happens is the market is no longer monopolistic. And so I think it's going to the case for weakening um, what's going to happen by way of regulation is going to be strengthened if, in fact, you now have greater degree of diversification. Some time ago, I wrote a piece for the AEI in which I said is I have no idea as to whether or not new entry is going to transform the market, is what I said. Uh, and if it doesn't, then I think you have to really worry about taking all comer rules and non-discrimination rules. But if it turns out the new entrant comes in, then it seems to me you don't have to worry as much about it. This certainly is the kind of transformative event that I never thought would happen. Like everybody else, I thought what would happen is somebody would build up a network from scratch, um, like Rebecca Mercer trying to bring back Paula or some other arrangement like that. Even the Trump network, although you can't have a network around a single guy, no matter how famous or infamous that he is. But now, in effect, what you do is you have new entry by takeover. That is a completely different kind of scenario. And so I would think that the case for regulation on this would be much stronger because we now do have a genuine diversity of views. And it also means that lots of people who feel that they're shut out and uncomfortable will start coming on this network. And my guess is he will get quite a distinguished roster of people who are willing to sign up with him uh, because they really don't think they have any place to go with the disinformation experts that are running everything on companies like Google and Amazon. Well, let's turn to Amazon because uh, this is the, the subject of your column this week. Amazon workers at a Staten Island warehouse voted to unionize by about a 55-45 margin. Um, two quick things stood out to me. One, 
During the run-up to the election, two union organizers were fired by Amazon. One was warned um, for certain actions, I guess, leading up to, to the election. From an outsider's perspective, that, of course, looks dicey, as Amazon doesn't want the workers to unionize. So please t- tell me like wh- what's happening there. But then also, you've got to tell us what Amazon does now with regard to the NLRB. In my head, they voted to unionize, they're unionized. But that's not the case, is it? Uh, on the latter shore. Now, let's just take the first one. This is not an entire diversion, but it is certainly an issue which is not going to determine whether or not the election stands or falls. Usually what happens is that union workers or potential union workers or employees who are sympathetic to union are generally protected under the National Labor Relations Act if they espouse pro-union ideas. There are certain limitations as to when and where they can do it. They can't do it at the on the assembly lines, and they can't do it during work sessions. But during the lunch hours in a separate area, generally speaking, they're given some degree of latitude in which to do this. What happens is when the companies want to fire these people, they often allege, look, we're not firing for the fact that he spoke here. What we're firing him for is the fact that he did something else. He falsified his or her kind, you know, time card. So that's a kind of an offense against the company. He shoved the supervisor when he was doing something on the work. He engaged in profane behavior. And you then have the question of which of the two motives, uh, dual motive case, is the true one. There's going to be a question of whether or not the dismissal is going to be admitted, whether the motive claim was fabricated or whether or not the discipline claim was fabricated. And what you do is you're then going to have to have hearings and so forth. The key thing to understand is if this happens, the remedy is typically reinstatement of the workers who've been dismissed with back pay and other kinds of adjustment. You could never derail a merger because it turned out what they did was to take bad actions with two payers. The question about how this thing gets decertified then depends on how you think the election was conducted. And this, of course, is not an issue that uh, the union could raise. They won the election. Uh, so it's Amazon who's going to come forward and start saying, you know, you see what these people did when the election was being held. And they engaged in certain kind of unfair labor practices. Uh, what they did, in effect, was to stage fake confrontations with the company management in order to put it into some kind of a bad lie. Uh, what they did is they lied to workers about what the arrangements were. And there'll be a very long litany of things that they can put forward, some of which I mentioned in the paper. I always like to say on shows like this, I'm a professor of law. I'm not a professor of facts. I'm not somebody who could sit down and say, these allegations when made by Amazon are true and these are false. What I can do is to talk about their relative severity and then leave it to finders of fact to figure out whether they are or not true or false. Now, these campaigns can be extremely complicated in all sorts of ways. And I think there was another dispute where a union was turned down, where now it's the union that's making the claim that it was Amazon who illicitly interfered with the way in which this particular thing was run. And so this election has to be set aside. And what we have to do is to have a new vote. So essentially, every loser is always in a position uh, to make these kinds of claims. And the outsiders have to sort of guess as to which way the claims are credible or not. 
you know, you could have the following view, which would be very helpful to Amazon, which says, you know, Amazon has managed to win all of these elections. So when they win another one, we really don't believe the claim that this is different from the other cases and they engage in bad techniques. But on the other hand, when they win an election when nobody's ever won an election before, then we kind of think maybe there's something that went wrong. You could imagine the ferocious response that that's going to make in both of these cases. So that what happens is you have a system that starts with, with, with elections and ends up in litigation. The litigation goes up on appeal. There is always the question of whether or not there's going to be interim recognition of the union during the period in which the dispute is done. Usually, I think the answer is if it's a credible case, it's, their courts are very reluctant to oppose the union, try to get negotiations done when the whole thing could fall apart at the appellate level. So there's an obvious incentive on the part of management to stop. I think I can say with complete confidence that uh, the company will get very good lawyers when it comes to defending their position. I can tell you from personal experience, for the most part, the union has a very sophisticated set of lawyers who work on its side of the case. The stakes are extremely large and neither side is prepared to let this stuff go. So if you're trying to figure out what the ambience is in the short term, we don't know. The larger question people are going to ask is, what does it portend for other people trying to organize in other places? And, you know, this is very tricky. They did this one on Staten Island. Well, that's kind of blue country, but maybe purple country. You try to do this in the South, it's going to be much more difficult to get some kind of support for these kinds of arrangements. There's also the very difficult question of what happens if the union holds, and then it turns out that the company has to figure out where it's going to send its various goods for shipment. And they will do, and it often happens this way, they say, look, this is now a more expensive plant to send things to than any other plant that we have. So we're going to cut back 5, 10, 15%. And then we're going to start laying off workers because we don't have the demand. The union will start to scream unfair labor practice. The management will start to scream. Uh, this is cost justified. You raise wages by $3 an hour. You've required more breaks and all the rest of this stuff. That's got to come out of something. And so it's only where we have a comfortable cost advantage of sending things out of the Staten Island plant that we will do so. But otherwise, we're going to start the shift. This is a very credible threat. And it turns out when you start making this threat, one of the responses is other workers in other areas say, hey, if it's going to happen to Staten Island, it could happen to us as well. Uh, so it's very difficult to figure out how you unionize a separate franchise, a separate location. The old unions were most successful when they tried to unionize the Ford Motor Company Riva Ridge faculty. You have you know, several thousand people under a single roof, mainly doing kinds of trade and manual occupations. Uh, the conflicts of interest amongst the workers are pretty small. Uh, the duration of the union is pretty long. And so you get very sophisticated union campaigns in these places, which often succeed. But these facilities are substantial in size, but they're certainly smaller than some of the other. There are a lot of countervailing forces. Your ability to move work around from one location to another is not very great if you're the Ford Motor Company in 1936, and all your cars are made at Riva Ridge, or 70% of them. If you're Amazon and you've got yourself 50 different stations, and you could add another 10 within a matter of, say, a couple of months, uh, then these guys could be left out on the vine. So all of these things will start to play into this situation. It's probably in the interest of everybody to have a settlement if you're only worried about this dispute. But the folks on both sides will say, 
it's not just this case we're worried about. We want to figure out what procedures we could put in place. And the union wants those procedures to give it a fair shot at organizing. And management wants to give it a, wants those procedures that give it a fair shot to shutting these things down. So I think that what happens is that the predictable is the thing that is most likely to occur. I've been involved in some of these cases. I'll just mention one to you. There was an extremely weak unionization campaign about an operation on his Garrowin Farms. Uh, it turned out it was none other than Kamala Harris that supported the United Farm Workers in trying to disqualify ballots. This thing took an endless amount of time to litigate. And in the end, uh, it turned out that the employer won with 80 plus percent of the vote. So they didn't even have to count the disputed ballots. So you never quite know in these cases which way the loyalties run. Astute management teams try to build up worker loyalty. Uh, those teams that get a little bit careless and indifferent to their workers find out they're paying a very, very high price. Uh, my guess is that Amazon will be advised by most astute counsel. My guess is the union will get excellent counsel as well. In general, when you're forced to predict who's going to win, um, it's the status quo that tends to prevail, which means that more often than not, a good defense will beat a good offense. Uh, what happened in this particular case is that Amazon lost round one, so the odds are evened up a little bit. Uh, but in the long run, it's certainly possible that there'll be greater union penetration. But my guess is that in terms of the union sentiment, it will be too little, too late, if it turns out the general pattern of resistance carries itself forward in this particular case. All right, but let's talk about a possible domino effect, though, because, I mean, the news, the coverage of, of this vote was that it was a really, really big deal. You were a little bit more skeptical. But let's say the union vote is upheld after a few years and other Amazon warehouses unionize across the country. I mean, is this the start of reunionization of the American workforce? Is it made easier by the fact that once there is an established union, you can, well, either, I guess, come up with local chapters or um, or a, you know a nationwide Amazon workforce do you do you think uh, you know union expansion is is in our cards or is it just a losing battle from from the 50s to now it's very hard look look at the general numbers and it turns out the unionization in the private sector is about six percent or under and what typically happens is when unions lose kinds of situations, Say a large GM plant closes down, 4,000 people lose their jobs. A small plant is expanded and 400 people get new jobs. So the general trend line has not moved in the slightest because of these large macroeconomic trends, which have two features to them. One is that unions are very costly in terms of the internal efficiency with associated with the firm. And once you decide to put them in place and have the bargaining regime there, uh, things are going to get dicey. And that plant is going to become less competitive, it will have fewer workers that are in it. Other union workers elsewhere will see this, and there's going to be more resistance to the extension of the union and more willingness on the part of non-union workers to stop them. You cannot run a nationwide campaign in order to organize a company like Amazon because the local work issues and the state law differences in plant to plant mean that you really don't have a common core of issues that makes it appropriate. 
So you have to do it on a piecemeal basis, which means opening new branches and shutting existing branches that are unionized becomes a very credible kind of strategy. So if you look at all this stuff, you then say, well, what are they going to gain out of unionization? And, and the basic situation today is for all of its weaknesses, the American economy is more competitive in more dimensions than it's ever been before. Foreign goods come in at a greater rate. Uh, uh, basically, transportation and sharing mechanisms become more sophisticated. And all of this stuff means that there is not a huge monopoly cushion which allows the Amazon workers to say to the firm, you make a fortune and then let it share it with us. That was the model which kept AT&T unionized for a very long period of time. What the company did is it had monopoly rates and it basically divided them with the government and with the union in order to keep its position. After the period of time starts to go, what happens is the unitary structure of the transportation or the telephone industry doesn't make any sense anymore. So what you start seeing is companies trying to break off mainly the MTA situation, whatever the name was, um, back in 1979 when they wanted to create private lines between St. Louis and Chicago to deal with bank data, which could have a sufficient volume. And so there's constant pressures in terms of the industrial organization structure to change these kinds of business models. So I think in general, the argument would be uh, there may well be blips. Uh, these blips will be aided by the Biden administration, which is doing everything within its power to help unionization. Most recently, they just issued a rule. And what that rule said, although it's going to be surely contested, is that it is no longer permissible for management to engage in a practice that it's done since the entire statute was passed in the late 1940s, the Taft-Hartley Act, which is to have sessions in which they would require unions to come, workers to come, to listen to their anti-union spiel. They're trying to stop that. There's going to be a big fight. My guess is that the NLRB will lose. But now what you have to do is to imagine it's 2020, 2025, right? And all of a sudden we have a Republican president. The board is going to change in its composition. There's not going to be enough continuity in the way in which the board works to exercise a huge permanent change over the structure of American industry. So I think, in effect, there may be a bump, but it will be a blip. Let me give you one example um, from New Zealand. I was very active in the late 1980s and early 1990s in trying to introduce a competitive economy in labor markets in New Zealand. And when we got our first reform through in 1990, a unionized workforce in New Zealand was an astounding 55% of the market, and the company was in a deep dive. Uh, nothing it seemed to be doing was going right. We got through an imperfect bill changing the notion from relations, i.e. we regulated from the center to contract, i.e. they regulated themselves, and we put the Employee Contracts Act into place. And the number of unionized workers dropped from about 55% to about 20% under an imperfect view, 500 or 600,000 new jobs were saying. The Labor Party comes back into power in 2000, and immediately they changed the statute back in the way which is more congenial to their interests. What they could not do is to get union membership anything close to the 55% that it had before. So once this thing starts to go down, reversal is extremely dangerous in any kind of economy. And if it turns out you have a government which is not particularly sympathetic to the union, they can't expect aid in the courts, too many Republican judges, or before the agency. So I think 
What is likely is that workers will have some degree of hope, at least union workers, but they'll meet lots of resistance from lots of different kinds of sources. So what I do is I see a period of increased contestation. I don't see a picture of major union gains in terms of the fraction of the workforce that's going to be represented. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. You can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas over at hoover.org. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Catch you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.